It's time to talk sports. It's Hacksaw's Headlines. A panorama of the world of sports. Stories, comments, and opinions. Here's iconic sports talk show host Lee Hacksaw Hamilton and co-host John Riley. It's a Monday up and down the West Coast. The holiday weekend is just upon us. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Lee Hacksaw Hamilton in our San Diego studios, along with my co-host John Riley, who's with us in studio rather than being out left field with his opinions. Uh, July 4th holiday weekend is coming along. We're going to do something different today on our, quote, bonus podcast. If you're a baseball fan, I think you're going to really enjoy this. As John said, we're taking a timeout. We're not going to talk about the Padres trying to climb back into the pennant race. We're not going to talk NFL free agency and training camps. We will withhold conversation about NBA free agency that just started and what just happened in the NHL and big movement in soccer. That will be covered Thursday with our regular podcast. And by the way, we're taking the show on the road Thursday. We are going to attempt to do our Thursday podcast from my cottage in the northern Adirondacks upstate New York near the Canadian border. Pray it doesn't rain. And more importantly, pray we find connectivity near my cottage. John, good afternoon. This is going to be different. Yeah, a little different. And I think, you know, it's the Independence Day holiday. You know, this is a time for us to celebrate America's birthday and sports and America. It's all a big part of our culture and history. He went to the back of his closet to be able to get his baseball cards. I've got baseball cards and autographs. I couldn't get into my closet. It's buried somewhere in the back. Just didn't have enough time. But we're going to do something different. We're going to talk baseball card collecting. We're going to talk about what he's got that he had on his shelves and what I had in my bookcases. Then we're going to talk about baseball books because we're all legitimate big-time fans who like to read. And then the third segment, we're going to talk a little bit about the history of sports and how it's evolved and how it's changed in America. So, John, we got a lot to cover. Let's start with baseball cards. Let's start with your collectibles and what you have. Show our viewers on our live stream and describe for everybody else listening on audio how you got into this and what you have. Okay, well, you know, when I was a kid growing up, I remember we used to live, I I grew up in Burlingame, which is up near the San Francisco airport. And right behind our house, a block away, we'd go to the, like little kids, we'd go into the liquor store and we'd buy baseball carts. You know, whenever we had a couple of quarters in our pocket, you know, you get like 10 in a pack and that, you know, cardboard bubble gum that comes with it. It's a big stick. And just over time collecting them. And it was just a fun part of my youth, you know, just being with some of my friends that were also collectors. And we were just kind of sports nerds. You know, we weren't necessarily the best athletes in town, but we love sports. We love collecting. And it was just a really fun experience. And I've been fortunate to have kept all of my baseball cards um, all the way into my adulthood and have, you know, kind of repurposed them in a lot of different ways. Same thing here. Grew up in a sports family. Uh, Grew up on Long Island where all we did was play sports, and then we would watch the Yankees, the Dodgers, and the Giants play baseball on television, black and white TV that became color TV. And I became a card collector. I started fairly young. I must have been eight or nine or ten. And I collected really heavily for about five years. Now, that was back in the day you could buy a pack of baseball cards for five cents. You get five cards, and you get the slab of Bazooka bubblegum. And that was the coolest thing. Then all the kids around me on Long Island, they collected cards and they played baseball. Now, some of the kids were avid baseball fans and we started trading cards. 
some kid would have three Mickey Mantles, and I didn't have any Mickey Mantles. Mm -hmm. So I traded him a couple Gil Hodges and Brooklyn Dodger cards, and we started swapping. Now, other kids weren't fanatical. Other kids never understood this, would <laughs> play flip them, throw the card against the wall to see whose card could get closer, and if you lost, you lost that card. Other kids did stupid things like they would use a clothespin and put the cards on their bike by the front wheel yeah. so it would sound like a like, muffler. Yeah, like a motorcycle. Motorcycle, yeah, exactly. I, I did that too. Yeah. <laughs> no, you're not putting a Duke Snyder card no. and you bend it all up on the front wheel of your bike. Yeah. Some kids did. And then the greatest story of all, all time, and I told you about this, I must have been in fifth grade and I went to a Catholic school. And they were pretty doggone strict. And I had nuns through my entire K-8 through education. And kids brought their stuff to school. And one day, nun is up at the front of the class teaching. And she keeps looking at two kids sitting in the back row, a couple rows beyond me. They were doing this. She stopped the class. She walked down, end of the, end of the aisle. What are you two guys doing? <laughs> By that time, the, the kids' knees are knocking and they're starting to stutter. Well, we were trading baseball cards. Show me. Lift it up. A kid pulls out rubber band bunch of cards. Had to be 50 to 70 cards. You, how many you got? He had a box down on the floor. He put the box up. <laughs> you would rather do that than listen to what I have to say about catechism and religion? <laughs> you two to the front of the class. Marched them up, put the chairs right in front of us, put a wastebasket between the two kids. Take your cards out, rip them in half. I almost had a heart attack. <laughs> Mickey Mantle and Yogi Berra and Whitey Ford's cards getting ripped in half with the nun right there with the ruler in her hand. Those poor kids had to rip up all their cards and put them in the garbage can. And then they had to hold a hand out and she whacked them. Go back. Get your notebook out. We're going to resume this catechism class. I was sick. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> so that's my story about the history of baseball cards. I never did that because I would never gamble my cards. They had a game called flip them. You take that baseball card, you flip it. If it lands on the ground with the player's face up, I have to match it. If I match it, my player face up, I take your card. If mine flips and it's the back of the baseball card, I lose my card. Cool. But I didn't gamble. And I surely did not put my Willie Mays card on the spokes of my bike. Yeah, right. Oh, a lot of <laughs> stupid kids out there. The bad part about collecting was a nickel a pack. So you, you buy a couple packs a week. But what if you get the same player? There was a pitcher in the 1950s by the name of Elmer Singleton, journeyman guy, Chicago Cubs. Somehow, someway, I got 10 of his cards in a month. <laughs> So I stopped going to that store and went to a different store to buy baseball cards because I figured all those boxes had the same cards in them. Why am I spending a nickel here to get Elmer Singleton's cards on Monday, Wednesday, and Saturday? So that's my, my baseball card store. Well, you know, this is back in the day when there was no dollar value to these. You know, it was just something we collected and we traded and we had fun with them. It wasn't until I was an adult that suddenly there were prices put on these things that became astronomical. But I remember 
um, one of my little league buddies, we would go to his garage and we would, he and two or three other guys, we trade cards and they were obviously trying to get all the famous players, but I just wanted to get as many giants as I could. And they, I would trade decent players just to get some mediocre giants because I wanted a bunch of giants players. And they thought they were totally taking advantage of me, but I was okay with it because that was what I wanted. Now, looking back in the rearview mirror, maybe I gave up a lot of money there. <laughs> but, you know, over time, I, I I gathered, you know, a lot of Giants, a lot of um, A's. Those are my two local teams. And then I collected, remember in 1975, they had those mini tops cards? Yep. So I have almost every one of those. Um, but what I did is I, I had them stored away in shoe boxes, my old Vans tennis shoe boxes for years. And, and um, thank God my parents didn't throw them out. I, I've had them on my possession since I went away to college and I've been schlepping them around. And then finally about maybe, no, maybe eight years ago or so, I was trying to figure out what I was going to do in my, my office, my man cave. And so what I did is I got all my old cards and I went to uh, Michael's, like the arts and crafts store and got a big frame and I created card, a big, you know, it's like a 28 by 40 frame, one for the Padres, one for the Giants, one for the A's, one for National League All-Stars, and one for American League All-Stars. And I want to just show them on the screen here. So um, this one here is the Oakland A's. These are just all the A's cards I collected as a kid. These are the Giants cards. And you can see up at the top, like the 1972 San Francisco Giants program. And I have like ticket stubs there from Candlestick Park when I went as a kid. And then over here, the one on the right, you probably can't see the detail, but are the Padres. And then the red one are the American League All-Stars. And the one on the left are the National League All-Stars. So none of these are really rookie cards. They're not, you know, the cards that, uh, you know, are worth a ton of money, but they're special to me. And so when I have them in my office and I just take a break from my work and I kind of look around, it just gives me some good vibes. Flashback. Totally. You remember one. Now, I did something unique and different. And you can tell me I'm crazy or weird or off track. <laughs> I was a pitcher because my dad was a pitcher. Mm -hmm. So I was a pitcher in Little League and I was really good till I threw my arm out. For some reason, I had this idea that I needed a piece of good luck. I took a baseball card of a Baltimore Oriole pitcher that I liked to become a fan of. And I put it on the inside bill of my hat when I pitched. Really? And it worked. It I worked? mean, it's the most stupid thing you'd ever see in the world. I had a baseball card of Billy O'Dell, who was a bonus baby with the Baltimore Orioles in the 50s <laughs> and got to the majors, actually pitched for the Giants. Mm -hmm. And I would take my hat off and I would put the Billy O'Dell card in the behind the brim of my hat, and I wear when I pitched. Nice. I did that for like two and a half to three years. Just, I mean, just like the guys today in the major leagues, you know, when they have the alignment that they have to, you know, look at, they take off their hat and look at the alignment. Wow, that's awesome. That's a great story. Yeah, it worked for me. I pitched a one-hitter one game, struck out nine. Also right. got knocked out in the first inning a couple times, too. <laughs> so quirky, quirky things. Well, that probably made you feel really confident when you were pitching. I was a baseball addict. I would yeah. do anything. I mean... You, and if you're feeling that confidence, no wonder you were a dominant on the hill. My next door neighbor was my same age, and he was a second baseman. And we had a bet of an ice cream soda when I pitched against his team. We only played him twice a year. I pitched against him that I could strike him out. Or if he got a base hit off me, I would have to buy him the ice cream soda. <laughs> didn't work because I beamed him. <laughs> I didn't strike him out. He didn't get a hit, but he wound up at first base when I plunked him with a wild pitch. Okay, 
What do you got there? You got some some baseball cards and baseball collectibles. Yeah, a bunch of different things here that I thought might be fun to show. Let's. I want to start with this. This is actually an interesting story behind this. Um, this is a ball. Let me see if I can open up this case. Well, maybe I can't, but I'll put it out here. This is a ball that's signed by all the 1975 Oakland A's. Wow. This is the year after they won the three World Series. And this isn't like some sort of like print that was manufactured. I mean, these are legitimate signatures because they must have been passing the balls around in the clubhouse. And uh, I got that because I went to an Oakland Coliseum game. And then remember you told me the story about what was it? Your one of your relatives wanted to write on one of your baseball cards, and it just drove you nuts. Yeah. Well, the same thing happened with this. Is that my my step grandfather was there with us at the game, and my stepfather insisted that he sign the ball too. Oh, and I was <laughs> I was ten years old. I was like, no, no, and but. I had to bow in there. So somewhere in there is my step-grandfather's signature, along with Reggie Jackson and Vita Blue and all the stars from that team. My grandmother, rest in peace, she knew I was a baseball fan. I showed her all my baseball cards. And I had my baseball cards, as I told you the story, put together by team, rubber band by team. I went out to play, came back in the living room one day. She used to come spend part of the summer with us. All my baseball cards are on the table. I said, uh, what have you been doing? She said, oh, I've been counting your cards. <laughs> so she went through the Brooklyn Dodger pile. And on the top was a Don Newcomb card. And she had taken a pen and written the number 36 and circled it on the card. <laughs> and I almost had a heart attack. My Don Newcomb card, what does that mean? You have 36 Brooklyn Dodger cards. And she said, you have 18 New York Giant cards. And there was a New York Giant Stack, Ray Jablonski, third baseman, the number 18. <laughs> I started to cry. I almost had a heart attack. And luckily, she didn't do it on the Henry Aaron card in Milwaukee or the Willie Mays card with New York. But that was just fascinating. That's cool. Yeah. I, took, I took my kids when they were really young to see the Padres play the Pirates mm -hmm. at Jack Murphy Stadium. And my boys, who were might have been five and eight, played Little League. Um, one was an athlete, the catcher. He wore more equipment than it was bigger than him. <laughs> the other one wasn't an athlete, but he was just trying to play because his brother wanted to play. And we were there for batting practice. So my young guys, well, he wanted he wanted to go down and right by the rail and watch the pirates come out of the dugout. Uh, full disclosure, wife from West Virginia, wife pirate fam, oh, fanatical. <laughs> okay. So she dressed the kids in her pirate jerseys or pirate shirts. And we went and stood right by the edge of the pirate dugout. as so they came out for BP at like 5.30 at night. And the deal was, okay, we'll go early, and then we'll go up and we'll get some hot dogs, and we'll come back for the start of the game. So we're standing there, and they got their gloves, and they're wearing their pirate shirts. My younger guy's got a pirate hat with the P. And here comes Jim Leland out of the dugout. Oh, and right after that was Brian Giles. <laughs> oh, right on. And Giles knew who I was. Jim didn't know. And he said, you boys from... Pennsylvania? I said, well, no, nah, my wife's from West Virginia. She's a Pirates fan. Wait here, guys. Goes in, comes back out in 30 seconds. Him and Giles, two autograph balls for my kid. Nice. How cool is that for total strangers? Yeah. There's hardly anybody in the ballpark. They open a ballpark at 530 when hardly anybody there. So that was cool. So they've got that on, on their mantelpiece. Okay, let's talk about 
history baseball cards. Okay. As a talk show host, you do remember I did things called the Summer Book Review Series. I do. And it was really popular. And I just went and chased down authors, all kinds of books, got them to send me a review copy. We'd follow up and we'd do a 15-minute interview on my talk show about the book. I did it every summer. And a chunk of it was baseball. Some of it was NFL, NBA, hockey, etc. So anyhow, I came across this author who put out this book in the late 1990s. It's the history of Topps baseball cards. And Topps is, is the company that started printing most of the baseball cards in the late 40s into the 50s. Nice. And they did it for 45 plus years. And then, of course, I think they were sold and they were bought out multiple times. But this is what we grew up on. This is what baseball fans, oh, kids, yeah. collectors grew up on. This is a book that has a picture of every baseball card that Topps ever printed. Really? It's really fascinating. Cool. Now, I went back and I pulled just a couple of select years. Back in the late 1940s, they were just starting. They used to give baseball cards uh, in tobacco pouches. Yeah. And then I think they did baseball cards with loaves of bread. This is one of the first baseball cards that Topps ever printed. This is 1948, and these were small cards. Now, it was just it was a headshot. It was the same graphic on every card they had. But this is in the 1940s. Kind of cool. Mm -hmm. So as I was a kid collecting cards for a five-year window or so, I ran into some older kids that had a box of baseball cards and gonna throw them out. I said, let me see them. So they popped them open. They had all these small cards that had been printed by Topps and other companies for a year or two. They gave them to me. Absolutely. I still have them in the back of my closet. If I could get in the back of my closet, I would have brought them. So that that's the beginning of what Topps was. And then as, as they, they printed more cards graphically, they decided to use all the players. And they wanted, they signed contracts with all these players. I don't know what kind of money these players got, maybe $75 a year, whatever. Mm -hmm. But everybody had a baseball card. Cool. Well, then, do they do headshots or do they do action shots? How do we use the logo? So this is, what year? I can't read that. 1955. 1955 from the Topps Baseball Cards. They decided to use headshots, logo, block names for all the players. And then on the back of the card, you'd have their career major league record and maybe one or two sentences about he pitched a no-hitter in the minor leagues in Richmond, Virginia. Nice. So, yeah. So they started to get really creative. So this was 55. The best ones I ever saw was they decided they were going to use action photos, John. Now, this is 1956 from Topps. And every card has the player's headshot with an action photo beneath him. Nice. I mean, that's, and I thought that was the, the grooviest thing I'd ever seen is <laughs> baseball action and guys guys sliding into home plate or yeah. making plays at first base. Or a, There's, a, there's a, a Jerry Coleman card here of Jerry Coleman turning a double play, an action photo of the Brooklyn Dodgers. And, nice. And they would lay Jerry Coleman's headshot above it. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was one of the really cool things I ever saw. And again... The, the longer Tops did this, the more they got creative. You know, and then, and then obviously they went back to headshots, et cetera. Then they went back to kind of glitzy graphics and the logos and the names of the teams. 
Uh, this is 1975. You know, this would be in like the the Pete Rose era of, of cards. And uh, this was a different layout than I had ever experienced before. I didn't like this one as much, but you probably grew up looking for every yeah, giant Those were like that. Uh, very common style. I remember that. It was yeah. one of those years. Yeah. And then, and then we fast forward from there, and we go into 1995, and these were much more clearer. The, pic- the photography was much better, and, and you can see all these different players, and some were action shots, some were head shots. So that's the history of baseball card collecting. And I bet if you were to go on... Amazon, you could probably buy this somewhere. The book. Uh, the book. Yeah. Tops Baseball Cards, that's what it's called. But it's it's a pictorial history of every baseball card that Tops ever printed. Nice. And, you know, we, we think now, based in Carlsbad, we have Upper Deck. Right. Which have been very, very successful. And they, they've expanded and they do football and hockey and NBA and all that. But this was the genesis of how this began. And young kids like you in the Bay Area and me on Long Island... We got addicted to doing this. My stuff survived. My dad threw everything else I owned out while I was at college. But my <laughs> baseball cards were hidden in the back cubby hole upstairs in my bedroom. And he never got to the baseball cards. And I'm thankful. And I've got them in the back, my back closet. And you think about, that's, what, 50 plus 23? That's 73 years of age. Yeah. Now, back there was a stretch of time in the 90s and into the 2000s where baseball card stores opened up in shopping centers. I remember that. And I used to go in there and look and et cetera. And it, I never I never traded stuff. I never gave my stuff away. I bought some stuff that I found there that I really wanted. They kind of took part in my collection. So it's cool because it's fantasy and it goes back to your life, back when life was really simple. And the only thing you and I would worry about was, would Willie Mays go four for four against the Milwaukee Braves <laughs> or... Who's going to pitch against Mickey Mantle at Yankee Stadium with the bases loaded? That's where our life kind of revolved around. That's It's a fun thing. And in our current lives today, we don't have a lot of time to enjoy where we came from, where we used to. But I started to look at this, and you went back in the back of your closet and your bookcase and look what you found. That's kind of cool. It's really neat. I mean, because on a lot of levels, because like to your point, it's a trip down memory lane, all those good vibes when we were a kid. And you remember all these players because you followed them so closely. But on another level, this is just a really kind of cool form of American art. Yep. You know, and, and, and this is the kind of thing that makes baseball a kind of a, a very um, romantic sport, you know, where people are collecting the cars and there's this whole subculture around it. Um, it's a beautiful thing. And it's also how I think baseball back in the day was the dominant sport because kids were essentially propagandized with all of this and they became huge fans of the sport. But it's, it's just really amazing. Um for those of us that have been able to save those cards, even if they're not necessarily a Mickey Mantle rookie, they're just so they're so feel good when you reconnect with them. Exactly. And you better keep them in mint condition. Yeah. Well, I want to show one other card here. I got this. My my kids got me this for Father's Day. It's a I don't know if you can see it here, but it's a uh, a rookie um, Ricky Henderson. So I think that's pretty cool. Um, so. 
All, all kinds of things. I mean, I, I went out, you know, when I travel on business, I always like to go to the ballpark to whatever city I'm in. And I was in Tokyo um, about 25 years ago, and I went and, and saw some Japanese baseball games. And so I got the, the Japanese program here. And, and then this is like a... Um, uh, the the Yomuri Giants, um, you know, to, yeah, the Tokyo Giants, and that's the uh, the manager with signatures from all the players on the team. So I just got all kinds of funky stuff that I've collected over time, and it's just cool, you know. Like like right here is um, a 1981 photo album of Candlestick Park for the Giants, and so there are pictures in here of there's Daryl Evans and. And Tom Griffin, well, hold it up to the camera there. Yeah, I'll show Daryl Evans here, because you know he was a he was a brave and he was a giant. And who else did he play for? I can't remember. That yeah, the Braves and the Giants. Gary Lavelle. I mean, that, this is the team that I grew up on, and that's cool because it flashes back. This is a neat picture of Candlestick when it wasn't raining. Must have been the odd day there when it wasn't cold. Yeah, they probably took that like about ten in the morning. Yeah. You know, when the weather was good. Um, so. I just got a bunch of this stuff, and my wife gives me a hard time because she says, I can remember the most minute baseball statistic from back in the day, but I can never remember the names of the children of her friends. <laughs> I guess my hard disk in my head is just too full of baseball nerd stuff. And I can remember the biggest trade in baseball history, 1954, the Yankees and the Baltimore Orioles, 18 players. 18. And I was sitting on the front porch of my house on Long Island reading this newspaper story when people used to read newspapers. <laughs> now... That being said, I can remember Gus Triandos and all those great Baltimore Orioles for that one given year in that trade. But I'm sorry. Can't remember my wedding date. I forget. You still can't remember your wedding date? My wife's birthday. Oh, man. At least five <laughs> times. Now, this came from somebody who was working seven and a half days a week and yeah. was meeting himself coming and going in the airport. My wife says, how can you remember this meaningless 18-player trade, but you can't remember the day we got married. But it's not meaningless. <laughs> that was an important part of your life at that time. Yeah. The greatest uh, thing, sitting at the breakfast table, she looks at me and says, do you know what day this is? I said, yeah, uh, Tuesday. Do you know what this date is? I'm terrible with dates. No, I don't know. You don't don't know what the, the date is. I said, smart girl, you got the cell phone, look it up. <laughs> and she says, uh, last I checked, it was our anniversary. Ooh. Oh, <laughs> But at least I haven't consisted. I've missed it five times, I'm sure, over the course. Okay, uh, before we uh, go to the next segment, we're going we're to talk books in just a minute here. Um, John, just remind everybody about how our podcast work, the bonus package on Monday, what we normally do on Thursday, and how people can subscribe so they'll be able to get access. And then when we go live, the fans forum segments that we're doing too. Yeah, so we're always dropping episodes, the live stream on Thursdays at 3 and Mondays at 3 as well. Um, and you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can also subscribe to wherever you get your audio only podcasts. We're on all the different platforms. Uh, so yeah, get involved and be part of the crew. I mean, the, the subscribers on YouTube are over 2,000. We're about to break through 7,000 followers on Instagram. I mean, this whole thing is just blowing up. And by the way, since you got a lot of spare time, check my website. There's the address. It's all written. I write on it every day of the week. It's LeeHacksawHamilton.com. And by the way, give us a thumbs up if you can and if you wish five star rating we have no pride we'll take it you like what we do let us know okay in my house aside from my baseball cards and a lot of hoodies with logos on it i'm an avid reader 
I am a collector of books. Mm-hmm. I probably have, I have three full bookcases in my family room of my sports books. Nice. Nothing else. <laughs> and I got media guides all over the house and in the garage, etc. you know, from covering baseball and the NBA and uh, NFL football, obviously, and, and my days in, in the NHL. So I've kept this, a bunch of that. But I probably have, I'd say, 400 books in my family room. Not my, I don't call it my man cave, my family room. Okay. And, you know, this, this, this baseball, tops baseball card pictorial history is one of the marquee ones. But I started collecting when I was really young. My dad had baseball guides, and I didn't know very much about them. But Spalding Baseball Company, the one that made the balls, yeah, uh, and another company called Reach, started putting out baseball annual guides, year-by-year records of all the major league teams and all the minor leagues. And when my dad passed, I got a collection of them. He collected them from the early 1950s to about 1960. And when it passed, I took them. Well, then I got addicted to collecting baseball history memorabilia, mostly books. And then I started to go to these baseball card trading stores and had a couple baseball card conventions, one in Phoenix. There was one in San Diego. And I'd walk through and see all these other collectors, and they'd be selling some of the stuff. And I found some of these baseball guides. And I went to another store, and he had a collection. Somebody, an old retired old ball player who lived and died in Phoenix, just gave it to him. I said, hey, can I buy these or can I trade something for them? So, yeah, he didn't care. They were just books. So I got them. I have the baseball card collection now of the Spalding Reach annual baseball guides from, I'd say, 1936 into 1960s. Wow. Okay, so I'm going to start here. This is the oldest publication that I have. Oh my God, look at that. This is a Spalding baseball guide. I had a member of the Cleveland Indians front office give this to me. Um, this is the this is the front section. It's a World Series. This date line is 1933. That's when this book was printed. Wow. So this has all the baseball records of every league that played baseball in 1933, major league, and this is the minor leagues. So this is the first, this is the oldest piece of a baseball publication that I have, Dateline, 1933. Oh, my God. So I mean, they, they were probably compiling all of the statistics by hand. There was no computers involved then. Yeah. I mean, that's amazing. And all this, this all this, I was done. It's all at the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. Now, we flash back to memories. So as I collected these books, and this one is from 1937, I believe. This is the Spalding Baseball Guide, 1937. And it has all the statistics of every guy who played baseball that given year, whether they were with the Brooklyn Dodgers or whether or not they were the Boston Braves or whomever. Now here's the ad on the back for Spalding. Right on. Okay. 
So I started to collect this, and I stumbled across this. And then I started to do research. I did not know very much about my dad being a minor league pitcher. He was in the Philadelphia A's organization, 1930s, college-educated man. So then it dawned on me, if I have these books, I might be able to find his pitching records. So I went and did research on this book. And this is the Mountain State League, which was a class C league, lower minor leagues, Mm -hmm. in 1938, I believe. And here I am looking, 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 and I found his record, his pitching record. It's got a, a little dot next to it with his name. Nice. He won 14 games. Really? In Huntington, West Virginia in 1938, I believe it was. That's cool. So I was able to find this, and then I went from there, and I I went to the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown in the archives, and I was able to find his entire pitching record from the mid-1930s until he went off to World War II. Really? Absolutely stunning stuff. That is very, very cool. I found one picture of him, a team photo. I don't have it with me now, but I still have it of him. He was six foot four, six foot five. He's the tallest guy on the team, standing in the back row of this team in Huntington, West Virginia in the 1930s. Wow. How cool is that? That is really cool. And then, you know, I just, I love to read baseball and history of baseball. And because I worked in the media, I had access to a lot of publications, and there was never a phone number I would not call to try to see if I could line up an author. And I've interviewed all the great baseball authors from Roger Kahn and on in baseball. So I have a huge collection of historical books. This is one that's going to take me a while to read. This is about Judge Landis. Oh, yeah. The commissioner who suspended the Black Sox, 1919. Mm-hmm. And this is a whole thing about his life. And as you can see, awful lot of pages here, yes. awful lot of reading. If I don't show up for a week, you'll know know what I'm doing. Right. But this is just some of my favorite stuff that in my quiet time or when I retire, I will be able to go back in my library and read things that I never had time to read before. And I'm just a huge baseball historian. I have seven different books that were authored about the life and times of Jackie Robinson, by all different authors, some of them very, very famous and just fascinating. And I, I got a book that I was able to get through the Dodgers about Branch Rickey wrote a book called The Dodger Way. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's just really neat. And some of these you can get through the library. You know, if you go to the library, we're in here in Rancho Bernardo, you go to the library, John, they'll go into the system and they'll tell you whether or not they have the book Judge and Jury about Kennesaw Mountain Landis. Or they'll tell you in the system, we have six different books by different authors about Jackie Robinson's life and times. And then they'll order it for you and you can get it on loan at the library. Library is a great resource. People have now forgotten that. Everybody dabbles on the Internet. But mm-hmm. I, I, I use our library system all the time to go search out publications because you don't want to buy every book out there. But if you have access to at least see it, right. that's cool. Yeah. So that's my collection. So when you come to my house, John, I apologize if it looks in disarray. It's just it's my library. It's not my man's cave. It's in my family room. But like I said, I got 400 books, baseball, some NFL history, a little bit of NBA, a bunch of great historical stuff on hockey, even some stuff on the history of NASCAR. Just it's fascinating. What I need <laughs> What I need is more days off. What I need is more rainy days where you can't go outside in San Diego and say, right. okay, 
I'm going to sit here and I'm going to read and read and then read some more. Now, you got a lot of books here. Yeah. Well, I just want to comment a little bit on that. That picture of Kennesaw Mountain Landis, that, that guy's a hard ass. He's a tough looking dude. He was. And, you know, and and he, uh, he yeah, he, he was ruthless. I mean, unbelievable. So, yeah. Well, coming out of the Black Sox scandal, the brief history is, I mean, he was a state senator, I think, from Kentucky. He was also a racist. But baseball had just staggered through the Black Sox scandal and the integrity of the game was a big, big issue. And they knew he was a baseball fan and they knew of him and they knew what a tough leader he was. And Judge Landis had them by the shirt. You want me? You give me a lifetime contract. And he was a baseball commissioner from the outset of the Black Sox scandal and the trial in 1920 mm-hmm. till he passed away, I want to say 1944, 1945, he passed away. I mean, he ran that thing with an iron fist, but he was also a racist. I mean, he did not want Jackie Robinson in baseball. And when Branch Rickey and even the young Bill Vick came up with the ideas of integrating, he says, no, we're not going to even have that conversation. But he was still great for baseball because wow. he brought its integrity back. Yeah. I remember, like, that was the thing is when we had, um, I think Bowie Kuhn was, was a relatively, I don't know, had a lot of integrity, I think, mm-hmm. right? But then when Bud Selig became the commissioner, it, it, it lost the integrity. Uh, but I, you always go back in history, and everyone knows that name, Kennesaw Mountain Landis. I mean, unbelievable. I mean, the stuff you got, it's funny how, you know, everybody has their own thing in their life. You go to some people's house and in their family room, their man cave. I mean, they might have philosophy books or history books, but we have sports books. And it's great. I mean, this is just makes our life all the better. It, it brings back really special times. It also proves what a real special time the game was to society. All right, what are your quick books here that you got that you really like? Well, this is one called Baseball Letters that um, was an author that you interviewed yep. back in the day. And this was an author that wrote letters to various baseball players, and they wrote letters back to him. And they're all signed here. I mean, this was an incredible interview you had. And then he was doing a book signing at a Barnes & Noble in Mission Valley, and I went down there and got it. And this was a great book. It's an easy read, but he would like send a letter to Ted Williams and then Ted Williams would write him a letter back and he published them all there. I sent letters as a kid for a couple of years, handwritten letters to baseball stars. Nice. I got Ted Williams actual glossy photo, his autograph in pen and ink, not a stamp in pen and ink. Cool. And I would... Dear Mr. Williams, my name is, I live here, I have been a longtime baseball fan, could you please send me your autograph? And I would put my home address on Long Island, Yeah. sometimes I would include a return envelope with a two cent stamp back in the day, and these guys responded. Now, modern day players can't do it, there's too many people, and (laughs) I've walked in the clubhouse with each guy has a cubicle for mail, it's all stuffed. Oh yeah. And I don't know how these... Poor guys have time to go through it and send stuff. But I had a lot of players. And I got Ted Williams, Mickey Mantle, Stan Musial's autograph. I also got autographs from people you would not know. Uh, Luis Arroyo, Hmm. Pittsburgh Pirate pitcher, was 3-11 in 1954. (laughs) And yet he took time to send me his autograph and a picture. So, like I said, I couldn't remember... 
wedding anniversaries or birthdays guy. I could tell you, I could just quote you Luis Arroyo's record. He wound up being a very good relief pitcher with the Yankees down road. I, so, I yeah. can just picture it. It's like, you know, memo from Little Hacksaw to the <laughs> Splendid Splinter. I need your autograph. <laughs> and it was, I'm, I'm in a shock. I used to sit on the doorstep of our house on Long Island and wait for the mailman to come. And I would do this all during the summer. And that have days I get three autographs. I was, you know, at two cents a stamp. Yeah, I was spending money doing it. I was going to the mailbox all the time and writing five letters at a time. It's not like a computer you send out a form letter now. Yeah. Here it's it's a, it's in pencil. I've got one one of the letters. One of the players wrote back. It was a minor league pitcher by the name of Don Lee. With I think it was with the Red Sox. And Don Lee wrote, he never, I don't think he had a glossy picture because he hadn't been in the majors very long, but I'd seen him on TV and I liked him. And he sent my letter back, but he autographed it at the bottom of the letter. Nice. Cool. Good and stuff. I, that stuff's in my closet, too. So I have to come over. If you want to help me clean my family room closet <laughs> out, we'll, we'll find my memorabilia. Okay, what other books you got here? This one here was really good. It's Game of Shadows. And oh, Barry Bonds? Barry Bonds, the Balco scandal. And, you know, Balco that was making the, the steroids was in my hometown of Burlingame. And the guy that ran Balco, I found out later that he was, I think, a, a trombone player or a bass player for um, uh, a Tower of Power. Remember that, mm-hmm. that band? Uh, but this was really interesting. And it talked about Bonds and Sheffield and, and all the juicing that went on and, and a lot of the speculation about wh- how, why Barry Bonds did what he did. You know, a lot of people thought it was a reaction to Sosa and McGuire and all the attention they got in 98. So what what a great book that was. This was written by the two guys at ESPN. And these are the same guys that wrote the NFL book about concussions. Oh, nice. Yeah, it's really, really cool. You ought to look that one up, too. Next book. This, this is about local history. Yeah, this is like a coffee table book. And it's just, um, you know, San Diego Padres history. It's like an encyclopedia of all kinds of Padre stuff. I mean, this is something you can just open it up and just read back in the day about when, not just when they built Jack Murphy Stadium or back when it was San Diego Stadium, but this goes back to when it was a minor league team. No, Pacific Coast League Padres are really good. Yeah, and like here, right here, I open it up. There's a picture of Tim Flannery. But just the stories in here that are just marvelous. Uh, so these kinds of coffee table books are really cool. Um, and they're really good conversation pieces as well. And, you know, if you go on I guess Amazon.com, you can probably find these where you can buy these or do what I do. You go to the library and say, can you look up? Do you have this book, San Diego Padres Encyclopedia? Mm-hmm. And is it in the system? Can I place an order to borrow it and read it? Yeah. And they'll, they'll go look through all the libraries in San Diego County, city library system, county library system, see if they can find it. Yeah. And the last one, this is all about minutia. Well, this, you really got to be an addict to want to do this. This is a crazy one. This is a ba- the Baseball Chronicle. And this is just loaded with photography and history, if you want to open that up there. Um, just cool stuff. I mean, you can get lost in this kind of thing. Um, and, you know, spend hours on a Saturday afternoon going through this. And it's just it's it's the memories. Right. And it's not just the memories of the game and your relationship with the game, but it's like the romance of baseball and uh, the Americana angle to it that I think is so special. And I think that's why it's great that we're talking about this on Independence Day uh, holiday. Okay, before we go to the next segment, we're going to talk about how sports has evolved. Just remind everybody again about the structure of our podcast and about subscribing and sharing all the data that we present on our 
podcasts that we do twice a week. Yeah, so you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, you know, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. You know, we were on Stitcher. Stitcher, by the way, is going down. I just heard about that recently. So we're on all the audio platforms. Of course, we're on YouTube, on Facebook, live streaming to all the different platforms as well. Uh, so be sure to subscribe, like, follow, and share all of the content. You know, we're putting those uh, those short vertical videos have been doing really well on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, um, and of course on YouTube. Uh, so yeah, be sure to check out all of Hacksaw's content. Yeah, subscribe, make sure you share, tell all your friends all the unique things we're doing on our podcast regular podcast thursday bonus podcast on monday and check my website uh, because i write about sports every day of the week leehacksawhamilton.com okay let's talk for just a second about the history of growing up with sports and how sports has evolved and you kind of hit a nerve with me last weekend when we were just chatting about what sports used to be and what sports became yeah it's interesting how when I was a kid, it was baseball was one, football was two, and basketball was three. And that was the order. And then that began to change in the 1980s, I think, as the NFL became uh, more prominent. And baseball lost a little bit of its um, sex appeal, I guess you could say. It since has come back. But it's interesting how culture and sports and how it changes. And even right now, we're seeing a surge, you know, with the NHL. We're seeing a surge of soccer in America. So it's always evolving. Um, but as kids, you know, the, we look at the sports we played sports we followed, and it makes a big difference in the culture and the society we live in. I have a few more gray hairs than you. (laughs) Uh, Baseball was really the only legitimate sport in the first half of that century, 1920 into the 1960s. Baseball was king. It was on TV. Nothing else was really, quote, on TV at that point in time. And baseball evolved. Uh, During World War II, Ken Burns' documentary, Nine Innings, detailed how important baseball was to the guys over there fighting. Oh, yeah. I've seen pictures of 1944 St. Louis Cardinals, St. Louis Browns in the World Series. The Browns, terrible franchise, got to the World (laughs) Series. All, All the great stars were off in the different theaters fighting the war. And anybody and everybody was on a major league roster, including Joe Nuxall, Cincinnati Reds pitcher at age 15. Age 15, wow. pitched for the Reds, one game in 1944. And also 48- and 50-year-old guys who have been retired who were brought out of retirement because <laughs> mm-hmm. there weren't enough players to play major league baseball. But there is a picture in the Hall of Fame of the Marines in the South Pacific around a big radio listening to the Cardinals-Browns 1944 World Series. That's how important baseball was. It was their link to what's going on back home in the midst of all the fighting. So so baseball survived the Black Sox scandal. Baseball went through the process of integration. Baseball had a rebirth when the players came from the Negro Leagues. And baseball rolled into the 1960s is still really the they call it America's pastime, still going on. Now, baseball went through bumps in the road. Things changed. It became a big money business vis-a-vis baseball free agency. Mm-hmm. Charlie Finley, your Oakland A's, yeah. tried to sell off all his players. The commissioner banned him from selling off the players. Jim Hunter and those guys sued for free agency. When my contract is up, I can go somewhere else. The courts ruled they could. Mm-hmm. And that 
the business of baseball really shifted and really changed at that point in time. My dad pitched in the Philadelphia Athletics Organization, and he was good in the minor leagues. He was a college-educated man in the 30s, and he wanted a pay raise as a minor league pitcher. And Connie Mack said no. Hmm. My dad said, I'm going to hold out. Connie Mack sent him a letter. I don't have the copy of the letter. My brother does. The letter said, you are the property of the Philadelphia Athletics till we trade you, release you, or you die. That was oh my God. the beginning of the push that we need representation. Yes. Here came the Players Association. Tried to form it in the late 40s after the war. Mm-hmm. Finally got it in the, in the 50s into the 60s, and they became all-powerful. Donald Fear, Marvin Miller, Hall oh, yeah. of Famer, etc. So baseball went from what it was, small time and very popular, to what it became, big business, in part because of the Baseball Players Association. And then baseball went through some ups and downs in terms of the quality of the game and all that. And then all of a sudden, it became a big thing again. And then it became an international game, which it had never, ever been. Occasionally, we had Cubans who would come to play in the major leagues, light-skinned Cubans that were allowed to play. Jackie Robinson broke the barrier. Here came Larry Doby. Here came Ernie Banks. Here came Willie Mays as they went from Robinson in 48 to what it became in the 50s with Frank Robinson and other great African-Americans to what it evolved to with Reggie Jackson. And then it became big business. Then it became global. And here came the great players from Japan. You know, whether it's the modern-day Ichiro Suzuki or Hideo Nomo mm-hmm. or all these other guys. Uh, now it's now it's an unbelievable global game because of the Caribbean and all the great players from the Dominican and Puerto Rico, Venezuela. Um, I mean, it's just fascinating how the game has evolved from what it was America's pastime to big business. And now it's gone through another explosive growth. Uh, statistic just came out this week, John. Baseball attendance is up 8%. 8% in the first three months of this season. Wow, that's big. That's huge. Yeah. You know, Padres are second in all of Major League Baseball in attendance, despite mm-hmm. what's happened on the field. Uh, it's it's just fascinating how the game has changed. What do you recall real briefly here about baseball then versus baseball now? What stands out? Well, I just remember as a kid in the 70s, it was the early 70s that I was you know seven eight years old, and the Giants were awful. I followed the A's. Obviously, they had those three World Series back to back to back. The Giants were awful in the seventies, but the game was going through that transition. You talk about Charlie Finley and Marvin Miller. I mean, that players' union is probably the strongest labor union in all of American history. I mean, it's amazing what they accomplished, and you know, guys like Kurt Flood and you know that helped drive that. Um, it, it, it's a it's like you. The story about your father, it's its almost like chattel slavery to a degree, you know, where they are the property of a, of a corporation and they can't they can't move. Uh, so I think the game is better now that there's there's more money and there's more movement. Um, but still, sometimes when there's a lot of money in a sport that sours some people. But in the end, I think it's it's overall it's good for the sport because the sport now is more exciting than it's ever been, has more personalities than it's ever had. Um, And when you go to a ballpark, you're not just sitting there eating a dog and drinking a beer. I mean, it's an entertainment event the whole time you're there. So baseball, Americana, United States history, you know, we're, we're flying the American flag on Independence Day. 
all of these things kind of blend together. I remember as a kid, the Chevrolet had that commercial, baseball, hot dogs, apple pie, and Chevrolet. Remember that? Exactly. And so it's that kind of vibe that I love about the sport, the, the romance, the history, the Americana that makes it so special for me. Baseball doubleheaders. Used to play them every Sunday. Oh, yeah. I'd sit there in front of that TV, and I would watch baseball doubleheaders. You mentioned about how the game has changed. Branch Rickey. I don't know if you ever heard this story. When he was the general manager of what would become the St. Louis Cardinals Gas House Gangs, Mm -hmm. and they they were dominant in the 30s and 40s. Young general manager. Now, there were no rules about players. He, at one point, had 45 farm clubs. They were everywhere across America. Yeah. (laughs) And they were working for next to nothing but guys who'd come home from the war, Mm -hmm. played baseball. They would sign. He had had three teams in one league in the lower minor, in one league in the lower minors. Amazing. Baseball, finally the commissioner, Judge Landis, broke it up. You know what he called the farm system? Or not what he called the farm system, what the media called the farm system, what the players called the farm system when he had 45 minor league teams? Chain gang. Ha. Yeah. So that that's changed. Here came the union, and obviously things have, have drastically improved. Okay, let's go from baseball. Let's talk about National Football League. In 1920, the hotbed of football was the Midwest. Ohio, western Pennsylvania, to a degree New York. 1920 in Canton, Ohio, which has just a great legacy of the game. That's where the Hall of Fame is. A group of owners got together and said, let's form a professional league. Because before that, it had been guys playing on teams as a second job, and they'd barnstorm around the country, and there was no organization. National Football League formed in 1920, and they started with, in small markets, Pottstown, Pennsylvania, Pottstown Maroons outside of Philadelphia, (laughs) Um, Green Bay. Uh, They were called the Packers, but they had a different name. Um, Detroit had a franchise, not the Lions. It was called the Staley's after an automobile maker. So that they, they had a franchise up in Duluth, Minnesota, called the Duluth Eskimos. Oh, my God. That's way the heck up there. And what happened was the great college players, after they left school, would sign a contract to play. Red Grange would play in Chicago. Bronco Nagurski played in Duluth. I interviewed those guys <laughs> when they were alive back, back in you. the 70s. And so football had some structure, but it was still a kind of a mom-and-pop-run organization. And then along came the 1950s, and here came this guy who became the new commissioner. His name was Pete Rozelle. Pete had come from an advertising background, a public relations background, come from New York. Pete had vision. This is what we're going to do to make the NFL bigger. He crossed paths with an advertising executive out of New York, who wound up buying a franchise. His name was Art Modell. Art Modell is the one that created the NFL TV contract. Hmm. And then the league, all of a sudden, was on national television every Sunday. Now, you didn't get to see all the teams. You only got to see the teams that were playing that day on that telecast. Pittsburgh Steelers, Bobby Lane days versus the New York football giants. They grew the program. They grew the program. And then... They decided, well, we'll have two networks. We'll put some games on CBS. We'll put some games on ABC. And there, there were a couple of other networks there. NBC was there. DeMont Network was there. Now, this goes back in time. <laughs> so as the league started to grow, 
50s into the 60s, boom. Still wasn't a corporate venture like it is today. They moved to the 70s, and because of Modell's connections in the TV business, Art Modell came up with the concept of Monday Night Football. Nice. Howard Cosell, Dandy Don, Frank Gifford, Monday Night Football became an institution. And then because people started to gravitate towards the, the networks, all of a sudden they decided, well, we're going to play games on other nights. And then they started to expand. Then the merger came. The AFL had gone into business in the 60s. And the NFL you know, looked at him and said, nah, no big deal. Well, when they started taking NFL quarterbacks to go to the American Football League, the George Blandas of the world and, and the Frank Trapukas and those guys, suddenly the, the league understood that they were getting raided and they were getting hurt. And then the AFL started to sign first-round draft picks. Um, great running back, Billy Cannon out of LSU, went to the Houston Oilers. NFL had drafted him. He never even met with them. He took the Houston money and went and played. All of a sudden, the AFL-NFL then they merged, and then it became big business. And then, obviously, the growth with ESPN. I remember interviewing Pete Rozelle when I first got to San Diego as voice of the Chargers. He said, do you ever think you put your games on cable network? Oh, no. No, we, no we're, <laughs> we have our, our network partners. Mm-hmm. Next thing you know, ESPN is up and running, and they get NFL games. Mm-hmm. And then the rest is history. Now it's become a mega business. It's become a global business. You know, we talked about planting your flag and playing games in Europe? Mm -hmm. Is there going to be a European division? Is there going to be a franchise based out of London? So the league has just exploded globally. But it all started in 1920 with mom and pop operations in the Duluth Eskimos. Yeah, well, that goes way back. And uh, I just remember following the NFL as a kid in the 70s. And back then, it was the NFL Today with Brent Musburger and Irv Cross, Cross and and, uh, Jimmy the Greek. And and what was the other lady's name? It was Phyllis... Um, I know Phyllis George. Phyllis George, thank you. And boy, that was an institution. That that pregame show. It's like you're looking live at Minneapolis, you know, with Brent Musburger. It was great. And and you always knew that the that CBS had the NFC and and NBC had the AFC. And then suddenly the NFC went to Fox. And I remember that blew my mind, you know, that they switched networks like that because it had been such an institution. Money talks, people walks. Yeah. I said the same thing. Fox? Yeah. Fox is going to do football? Right. And it, I mean, they hit the floor running with creative stuff that had never been done on the other networks. All of a sudden, they're a player and they've been a player ever since. Well, back then, Fox was still in its infancy. I think they had the Simpsons, you yeah. know, and maybe married <laughs> with children. And, and that was it. So it's incredible then how we got into the 80s and the Super Bowl just became such a big event. I mean, now it's like an American holiday, the Super Bowl is. And I think it was when we got in the 80s, it was like football started to creep up and pass baseball. And then definitely in the 90s, it was for sure. Blew by it. Right. Yeah, just absolutely amazing. Baseball's made a comeback, but not to the level of of success that football has become. Okay, from that, let's talk basketball. Uh, The Mecca of basketball. I grew up next door to the Mecca of basketball. I was a Long Island kid. The Mecca was Madison Square Garden at one point. The whole world revolved around college basketball in the city of New York, revolved around the New York Knickerbockers. Mm -hmm. And yeah, there were other teams in the league and other players in the league. And that was the 40s, then it became the 50s, and then the NBA started to grow in the 60s. And it just, it got bigger and bigger. And then college basketball became a great pipeline. 
we started to follow college basketball on TV, and we identified with the Larry Birds and the Magic Johnsons of the world, and they came in and they actually saved the NBA when they arrived because the NBA was suffering really badly because of the old ABA, John. And obviously, the game has just rocketed in terms of popularity. It's become a young person's game who watch it. It's become explosive. The athletic level, if you ever sit courtside and watch an NBA game, you're just overwhelmed with how great and explosive these athletes are that oh, yeah. are playing this game. It's just, it's phenomenal. And then it's just, it's just not Kobe and it's just not Shaq. It was Bill Russell and it was Will Chamberlain back in the day. Then it became an international global game. And here came all these great players from abroad, starting mm-hmm. with Hakeem Olajuwon, and progressing to where we are just a week ago, Wemby coming from France with the San Antonio Spurs, Victor Wembanyama. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it, it's a, a unbelievable global game now, and the NBA is planting its flags everywhere. And you know, the next horizon, what what they've mined out of Europe, is amazing. What they've done in brief spurts of time with the Yao Ming's of the world in the Pacific Rim, the next one is Africa. And they got basketball academies in Africa, and great big men are coming from Africa. So the league started out really small, Chicago Zephyrs and all that. Mm-hmm. And now it's become really big time where it's front and center of attention. And its popularity has grown maybe almost even, Stephen, uh, to baseball. So it's it's fun there. So. You an old-time Al Adels, Golden State <laughs> yeah, Warrior yeah, fan. Yeah, definitely was back in the day, you know, because uh, this is in the mid-'70s, and the Warriors won the championship. They beat the Bullets in four straight games, and it wasn't on TV, remember, because it was on tape delay. And I remember in my parents' dining room, we had this big console that had a record player and a, and, and a radio, and I would sit there and I'd listen to the, the NBA championship in those years. That was Rick Barry and Clifford Ray and, and a young Keith Wilkes, and it was a great team. Um, but it still blows me away that the sport in the 70s was so low on the, the, the stack ranking, um, and the games weren't all televised until Magic and Larry, and then the whole thing blew up. And now, you're right, it's the, the athletes on the court are phenomenal athletes. I love the way basketball, but I love the way every sport's gone global now. I think it's a great thing to bring people, societies, and cultures together. Concur with you wholeheartedly. Let's talk about the other one, hockey. National Hockey League, the original six. <laughs> That's, I grew up in hockey. All we cared about was the New York Rangers and the Boston Bruins and those guys up north. We dislike Montreal and the Toronto Maple Leafs. And there were six teams, Chicago Blackhawks, Detroit Red Wings, etc. And they just kind of drifted along. They had their corner of the sports world. That Those fans loved it. Those players played. There were only six major league teams. The minor leagues, there were minor leagues at all different levels. Those guys went there and they stayed there for nine years because they couldn't get to the big show because there were just, there were only six sets of jobs available. Great. I remember a guy by the name of Terry Sawchuk, goaltender. I'd met him when I was young. He wound up with the Detroit Red Wings, had a really nice career. Guy was in the minor leagues for nine years. You know how bad the minor leagues are in hockey? (laughs) Riding buses, drinking beer, eating hamburgers. Holy cow. It's a tough existence. Then the league started to expand in bits and pieces. And all of a sudden, we woke up one morning and they added six teams. They went from six to 12 immediately. So, wow. Here came the Philadelphia Flyers and the Pittsburgh Penguins and the Vancouver Canucks, etc. 
And then all of a sudden, and they were selling out all these games, but there's limited revenue streams. It it was not a national TV contract. It was only in New York because they cared about the Rangers or Chicago or Detroit. Here came the rival leagues right at the start of the 70s, World Hockey Association. And much like the NFL, NHL said, eh, no big deal. They're never going to survive. They're in secondary markets. And they signed Jerry Cheevers of Boston. And they signed Bobby Hall of the Blackhawks. And they started to raid all the draft picks. And then they changed their rule. And the WHA said, you're good enough, Wayne Gretzky. We're going to sign you at age 18. NHL age limit was 21. And they took all these guys that have been stuck in New Haven and Tidewater and in the minor leagues. They signed all them and gave them bigger paydays. Wow. All of a sudden, the WHA became a competitor to the National Hockey League. And when they started taking NHL goaltenders and overpaying them, and the guy went across the street. And then they started signing the 18-year-old draft picks who wanted to play immediately for a payday. Rather than have to wait till 21, here came Gretzky and here came Messier. And then they were the first ones who went to Europe. And they mined all the gold out of Europe. They brought all these players from Russia who defected at that time from behind the Iron Curtain at great risk to their families. And they went to Finland. They went to Sweden. They started to sign all those euros. All of a sudden, the league got really decent. But at the end of the day, the credit card bill came due, and they had real money problems because they never could get a really true national contract. And then because they were killing the NHL, they went to a merger table, and they got a deal done, and they took four WHA teams and brought them in. And Edmonton came in the NHL. I was in Cleveland as a voice of the Crusaders. WHA, we were really a good team. It was supported really well. And we did not get into the NHL. And the team went away and the league went away. Um, the league got bigger and better. And now it's a truly global sport. And they're bringing players in from Russia. And they're drafting kids. Sweden, Scandinavia. Team USA's national program has now put kids at the top of the draft board. It's fascinating how it's become a really good global game. And hockey, like the NBA, like Major League Baseball, they're playing in their flag places, and they're playing regular season games now abroad. It's just great. And it's no longer just a little regional sport. It's just no longer the Detroit Red Wings in that state. Mm -hmm. Now it's the whole country, and it's abroad. And... TV contracts, they televise all hours of the day in all types of places. I mean, it's fascinating to me how the league has exploded. Funny story, when I worked in Ohio, in Cleveland, again, this is a talk show host, never afraid to call a phone number. I called the National Hockey League to try to set up an interview with the then commissioner, Clarence Campbell, who had been there forever. He answered his own phone. <laughs> right on. Right on. <laughs> and I told him who I was, and I said, I would like to set up a phone interview for the people of Cleveland. Just talk about hockey. And he gave me 15 to 20 minutes. It was fascinating. Good for you. It's, it's a different different time now in terms of doing sports talk and trying to get guests. Of course, there's 8,000 stations, and everybody's trying to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. But uh, so, I mean, to just to see how hockey has exploded it's become a truly global game. It's become a big international game. The Olympics, the World Hockey Championships, uh, what I think took the NHL to a different level was when they formed the Canada Cup. Mm -hmm. And we played. And the success of Team USA in 1980, 
you know, the Miracle on Ice. Oh, yeah. Beating the professionals who, quote, were the Russians. Yeah, that was big. Phenomenal. I, I've been to Lake Placid. I've been in that arena. I mean, just you can't speak. Yeah. It's just so much history just rains yeah. down on you. Right. Uh, but the game is, is so good, so fast, so athletic. And now it's truly a global, global game. So that's my spin on where the NHL was, where it's come today. Well, I have a question. It's interesting to me because this is NHL merger with WHA, but it also happened in the NBA. The NBA and the ABA merged. And you said only four teams came to the NHL. And I know that was what happened with ABA. Only four teams came into the NBA. Why didn't the other markets get in? What was the reason? Well, because they asked for an entrance fee. And a lot of the other markets were were dying and starving. Oh. And ownership at that point, hockey following had not exploded. San Diego had a for three years had a WHA team was pretty good called the San Diego Mariners. Oh wow! But they had trouble paying their bills because they had to pay big money. They stole a guy from the Philadelphia Flyers, Andre Lacroix, great hockey player, but he's making big money. And now you got to sign all these other guys to have a twenty-three man roster. They just could not make it financially work. And then the NHL says because they were bleeding. And the WHA was bleeding, and they said, okay, we'll do this merger, but you got to pay X million dollars to come in as an expansion franchise. Mm. And then they worked a deal where they allowed, it was Edmonton, Winnipeg, Hartford, Connecticut, um, and maybe Quebec City. Those were the ones, I think those were the four that finally showed up. And they worked a deal. The WHA said, well... If we're going to pay $3 million entrance fee per club, you have to let us keep our stars. And the NHL said yes. So that's how Gretzky and Messier and Lowe and Grant Fuhr stayed in Edmonton. And that mm. was a foundation of a really good franchise. Yeah. And, and, you know, Winnipeg had Bobby Hall was still there. Uh, and they, they had brought in a whole group of European players that changed the game. And uh, Anders Hedberg and Ulf Nilsson, guys that hockey fans would know. I remember the first time I did a Cleveland-Winnipeg game in Winnipeg. And these guys didn't play at the pace our teams played at. They weaving and passing. All of a sudden, a guy was open in front of the net and the puck was in the net. They mesmerized you. You didn't know how to defend it because you'd never seen it. It was the Euro style. Mm. And in Quebec, Quebec came in and we, they loved the Montreal Canadiens, flying Frenchmen and all that. And first time I saw the Quebec Nordique, and they had really great, great skaters. Holy cow. Fire wagon hockey up and down, pucks, shots on goals, just ridiculous. So they brought, they brought a Euro style and a very different style when they merged. The NHL became better because of what the guys from the WHA style-wise brought into the game. That's cool. I, I, it's interesting to learn more about hockey because growing up in the Bay Area, hockey was a very foreign thing for us. But I th didn't San Francisco have a team, the Seals? California Golden Seals owned by Charlie Finley. Charlie Finley. That so, didn't work out well either. <laughs> was that WHA or NHL? That was NHL. It was? Yes. When, when, what years was that? That had to be in the 60s into the 70s, and then they wound up moving. Actually, they moved into Cleveland when the WHA went away. The ah. California Golden Seals moved to Cleveland, became the Cleveland Barons, but that didn't work either. Interesting. Okay. Well, I mean, but yeah, but still, I'm, I'm still, I'm a hockey rookie, you know, as a fan, learning more about the sport and, and just hanging out with you. I'm picking up a lot of it. So just stuff. make sure you circle on your calendar Friday night, September 29th. Circle that. Beer Friday night, sports arena. The goals will host 
L.A. Kings and the Anaheim Ducks are going to play an NHL preseason game in here on Friday night, September 29th. So just tell the wife really? that you're going to go down and drink beer, and you'll be the one that will be pounding on the plexiglass <laughs> during the game. <laughs> oh, I, I'm going to definitely go to that. I yeah. mean, that sounds like a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. Um, so, so that's preseason, but still great, and maybe we'll get a chance to see the new draft pick. We'll find out. Interesting. I hope you've enjoyed it. We're decided because July 4th holiday, we were going to do something really different. Just a reminder, if, if you're turned on by some of the stuff, go to your library or go on Amazon. You can probably buy some of these historic books. It's just such cool stuff to have. Now, go ahead. I have a question for you. Try it. What's your favorite sports movie of all time? Oh, that's another topic for another day, and that's going to take up another hour. <laughs> okay, then we will. We'll, we'll put that in okay. the on the things to do list because we could have some real fun with that. Yeah, I agree. Okay, we'll do that around one of the other holidays. That'd be cool. That sounds good. Hey, listen, we hope you've enjoyed kind of a special holiday broadcast. We thought John and I would just do something different. We're going to be back here next this coming Thursday, right after the July 4th holiday, if it doesn't rain on us at my cottage in upstate New York near the Canadian border, <laughs> and if we can find connectivity. And if we can't, hell, I might be doing it from a pub up near the Canadian border, and that would be pretty cool. That would be great. Cool. <laughs> hey, listen, we hope you've enjoyed what we've done. Follow us, subscribe, share, tell everybody what we're doing. Have yourself a great 4th of July. Same to you, John. Happy holiday. Same to you. And we'll see you this coming Thursday. Thanks for being with us on Hacksaw's Headlines. Join us again for Hacksaw's Headlines on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. And find the audio version on your favorite podcast app. For more content, go to LeeHacksawHamilton.com.